Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Rundgren Radio. My name is David German. I'm your guest host this Tuesday night. Uh, Doug and Mel are uh, uh, on hiatus but uh, should be calling in shortly. And I'm uh, very happy to be hosting the show tonight. We're going to have once again as a guest... Uh, and we're going to be talking to him for the duration of the show, starting about 10 minutes or so, and that is Ralph Shuckett. Ralph was on the show a while ago um, where he first talked about his experience with Utopia. He was on just recently, uh, having now joined the A Wizard of True Star Tour and talked about his experiences there and everything. But tonight we're going to have an in-depth conversation with him in regards to his career going back to the early parts of his association with Todd from the uh, original time with uh, Todd Rundgren's Utopia. Then we're going to be talking about uh, his own experiences after that as both a successful songwriter and also a producer. And on top of that, then, we'll also be talking about his experiences once he's reconnected with Todd after all these years uh, performing now with the the band uh, taking Roger Powell's place for the most recent shows for the Wizard of True Star Tour. So... Uh, that is our game plan, and uh, let me, before we get into uh, uh, talking some other things in regards to Todd, just go over just some of the concert dates that are coming up. Uh, first off, um, these are all tour dates that are going to commence in April, and uh, right now we've got eight dates, but I imagine there's going to be even more than that uh, to be uh, uh, set up for the tour, uh, but uh, starting on April 2nd, uh, Todd will be performing at the Bergen Performing Arts Center. That's in Englewood, New Jersey, which is about 10 minutes from Manhattan. It's in uh, Bergen County, right across the George Washington Bridge from New York City. So you uh, New York area folk, uh, New Jersey folk, and uh, surrounding New York metropolitan area folk, um, easy place to get to. Public transportation brings you right there, and it's just minutes from Manhattan. A wonderful, wonderful restored theater and uh, Todd's going to be performing there on Friday, April 2nd. On April 3rd will be uh, the Tupelo Music Hall in Salisbury, Massachusetts, and uh, that's on Saturday, uh, April 3rd. On the 7th of April is going to be the Midland Theater in Newark, Ohio. Um, April 9th is going to be the Greensburg Palace Theater, uh, Uncasville, Connecticut, uh, the Wolf's Den at Mohegan Sun Casino, a free show, on the 10th of August. The 11th is going to be the Richfield Playhouse in Richfield. The 13th is going to be the Birchmere Music Hall in Alexandria, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. And then I believe Todd's played here in the past on the 14th of April is the Ram's Head on stage um, on the 14th in Annapolis, Maryland. Doug, do we have you here on the line? That is correct. What's going on, man? All 
right. How's it going? Uh, calling in from the road here. Um, as I mentioned before, <laughs> we're on hiatus this week, but uh, thought they'd just call in just for a minute. Uh, Doug Ford here on the line. How's it going? It's going all right, man. Mel's going to call in, too. But uh, we are um, at Polestar Live, which is in L.A., Los Angeles, California. And so the only reason I say that really is because the two posters that we did for the AWOT shows, the um, California with the shaving cream, Gene Lannan's photo, Bill Bricker's work, and then the AWOTs one that uh, Jefferson Wood did, they both made the top 50. So I don't know how many were entered, but last year it was over 1,000. So it could have been, you know, if it was anywhere close to that, that's, that's pretty good. But regardless, we're in the hunt. And uh, tomorrow night they have a big shindig, and they announce the winner of the poster contest. Unfortunately, it's not a professional judge. It's a, everybody that's here, so it's more of a popularity contest. So I don't know how we'll do. But anyway, it's fun. It's cool. See it up there. and um, There's a lot of people here that have seen it that are in the business. So we've been to a couple little seminars, you know, trying to see if we can figure out some ways to improve things if we do gigs. And that's what we're doing. Just got through listening to the CEO of Zappos. You know what that is? Mm-mm, no. <laughs> That's because you're not female. <laughs> Zappos is a shoe company. Basically, they have other stuff, but they, you can kind of custom pick your shoe, and they're real popular because they have this unbelievable customer service. They'll ship you shoes and pay for your shipping if you don't want to keep it and just ship it back and some other crazy stuff. So that was pretty cool. But oh, uh, I heard stuff. the gig. I, I guess there's not any new new gigs announced. It's still the same. What was it, nine? Uh, we've got eight shows here. Mel, are you eight on shows. the line? Yes. Hi there, David. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? All right. How you doing? I'm doing good. I tried to get myself to a quiet place, and I realized that I'm out on the street, so it's a little noisy because it's rush hour here. But okay. Anyway, yeah. So okay. Doug was telling you all about the Zappos guy, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And Doug, to answer your question, yep, uh, they're still pretty much the same eight shows, uh, starting off in Englewood, New Jersey, and then on the 14th. Uh, Annapolis, Maryland. It seems like he's starting off kind of just doing the whole mid-Atlantic region and then Newark, Ohio on the uh, 7th of April and pretty much the rest in uh, Connecticut um, down to uh, Alexandria, Virginia. The nice thing about these shows is is that uh, although they're not necessarily right in Washington, right in New York City, etc., mm-hmm. they're right in outlying areas. So if you're in D.C. to get to the Bertram Music Hall, it's right across the Potomac in Alexandria. To get yeah. to uh, Englewood, New Jersey, it's a quick bus ride right from uh, downtown New York uh, right into Englewood, New Jersey, so they're very easily accessible. Yeah, there's a lot of big, big advantages to getting outside of the big cities. That's why we did Akron instead of Cleveland. But, uh, you know, we've, we've done some big cities as well. But it's nice if you can kind of get out in the suburb. And I know Birchmere always does well. They typically sell out. It's about a 400 to 500 stand-up venue, and there's some tables, I believe. So if you're going to go to that one, you need to get tickets pretty quickly. And then this one in New Jersey apparently is a very big venue, very large. But uh, speaking of cities, we heard one that's actually uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. A venue dude was here and said that they're charging the government's charging a 10% entertainment tax. And we thought that was kind of interesting. So now you got the government involved with being as bad as Ticketmaster. So hopefully that oh. some of that will get uh, won't get everywhere so that we can kind of keep prices down. <laughs> it's uh it's always annoying when they do that. Where does it end? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, well, your, your, your friends Doug and Mel are getting educated on how to bring the right product to you, wonderful listeners. <laughs> yeah, and there but was, we will uh, find it. 
Uh, the guy from Chicago yeah. from a Jam Productions was here, so we got to listen to him a little bit. And you know, they're they're trying actually. The the cool thing is that a lot of the, I guess vendors for lack of a better term, which could be anything, a band, a, um, a promoter, a venue, uh, they're they're pretty much beating up on Ticketmaster and this merger and some of these other companies trying to drive costs down on these fees. And um, there's actually a talk about that tomorrow. And there were some places. Uh, there's one in Aspen, Colorado, for example, where they charge no fees. Tickets, no fees, and uh, that was kind of nice. There's a few of them that do that. So, anyway, we're just kind of checking it out. And uh, I know you're looking forward to talking to Mr. Shuckett. He should be calling in soon, I hope, right? Yep, Ralph will be calling in soon. I must say, um, congratulations. The fact that you even made it this far with the poster and everything in that competition, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, well, thank I remember. You. Yeah, that is that is great. No matter what happens, you know, considering the amount of people who enter and everything, and you said I think you're in the top fifty. Yes, yeah. they put it on the floor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. That is that is absolutely great. Um, I got to tell you, you know, I remember the night in Akron, and after the show, I mean, to see the merchandise table and the people going over there and everything, it was uh, a major major hit. It was great. I mean, people were thrilled to get the poster the T-shirts and everything, and I think that uh, they're truly great keepsakes that people are going to really treasure having from the from the tour. Yeah, the, uh, and I'll, uh, we apologize, too, to anybody who tried to get their posters in those little tubes we bought. <laughs> Next time we'll know better if we do it again. But the uh, <laughs> we had some really small tubes that didn't – that paper was so thick that it was hard to roll them up in there. But there's still some of those posters available at groupiegear.com, as everybody knows. And um, – just a little, we'll, we'll let a little news out. We're going to try, uh, by the end of the week, we wanted to see what we learned here first, but we're going to send an offer Todd's way to his peeps about uh, doing another birthday bash third year, and um, we're targeting Akron as the place. So if we get that done, we've got the venue on hold already. We've got the hotel set up already, so we can give people information on that. But, you know, we've got to get an agreement, so we're working hard on that for everybody so we can have another good party, have some fun. But I'm going to cut yeah. loose and let Mel talk to you a little bit because I'm hogging the thing. But uh, good luck with Ralph. And, man, we appreciate you uh, guest hosting for us. It's my pleasure. All right. Thanks peace out, everybody. So okay. Catch you later. Well, hey, hey David. Did, uh, uh, right. did, You're out there. Did, on the I'm on the street. <laughs> I'm the reporter You're on the street. back on the street. <laughs> As they say yeah. on Oops, yeah. back on the street again. Back on the street again. That's right. Well, um, did Doug tell you the funny little story about what happened near the uh, display of the posters today? No, no, no. Tell us that, please. Oh, he's probably going to get mad at me for telling tales out of school. But it was we had to have such a chuckle because they have all the posters on display. They put them up on phone boards, and they have them on these racks or whatever. And um, Doug and I had just walked up, and we saw our poster, which was right at the front, the one from Akron, and then we were looking for the one from California, and we heard this conversation going on with three of our promoter competitors. We'll just put it that way. They're they're a big giant, at least here in California. Uh-huh. And one guy one guy said, Todd Rundgren, Todd Rundgren, they've got two posters, Todd Rundgren, and then he like made this this kind of a like he was gagging himself with a gun in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and so Doug goes, find out who those guys are. Go see if you can read their, their name tag. And I finally, uh, between the two of us, we figured out who they were. And sure enough, they uh, 
they're the usual promoters for one of the venues that we used here in California, and I'm not going to say who it was, but we thought that was funny because they were going around looking for their posters, and I'm not sure that I saw any of theirs, so. Oh, too much. It was fun. It was fun. So. (laughs) So well, I'm glad you, you I'm, yeah, yeah, oh, there's lots of people, and it's definitely an eclectic group. There's people here in the music business that are young and tattooed and pierced and, um, you know, doing the devil horns, and all the way up to the people that are in their 60s that I guess represent a venue or an artist or something like that, and it's really fun. We haven't quite had a social hour yet with anybody, but that's what's going on right now, so I will let you go so I can go get my complimentary beverage and maybe a piece of chicken on a stick or something. Well, Mel, thank you for calling in and and have a great time out there and everything and uh, glad it's been productive so far. Yeah. Yeah. And we will, we will, um, maybe we'll know something by next week's show about, uh, birthday bash three, a little, a little more than just a, a tease. Well, that's great. It's good. Get a little tease out there and everything, and then yeah, hopefully more details next week. Yeah, and I just want to say hi, everybody, and thanks for listening, and um, have a great interview with Ralph. I wish I'd be able to listen, but we'll we'll listen on archive. All righty. All right. Take care, David. Thank you. You too, Mel. All the best. Okay. 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 Bye-bye. Bye now. Hello. I think we've got a caller here from 512. Do we have a call from the 512 area? Yeah, we did. Hello. We got someone called from 512. Who's who's calling in? David, can you hear me? I can hear you. Who's this? This is actually Tippy, and I'm just listening. I'm on the long drive, and I can't chat, and so I'm really just supposed to be listening in. I thought you had to push one in order to talk. I got you right now, Tippy. You're on the air. Well, I'm really just a bystander. I'm an innocent bystander, and you can just let me marinate if you want to. I'm just listening as I drive, so that's why I'm in your queue for the rest of the night. Well, that sounds great. We're waiting on Ralph in a minute. We just heard uh, Doug and Mel just called in from Los Angeles. Um, Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, and they're having a good time out there, and, uh, you know, uh, great news about uh, the reaction with the poster and so forth and everything. And, uh, Tell me what um, the teasing was about the Radio Bash 3. I didn't hear the teaser. What was that? Can you say it? Uh, I'm sorry. Could you say that again? You're kind of breaking it out. What was the tease about London Radio 3? I missed the Bash news. What was the, the, the tease? Yeah. Um, there's a possibility that uh, there could be the uh, birthday bash uh, back at the theater in Akron, uh, birthday bash three, uh, which I think would be absolutely fantastic if it happens there. I got to say, that theater, I mean, is just absolutely spectacular, and it's so fitting because it's right near the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, it was very, very in Akron, and I worked there when I was a kid, so I have a special affection. That's the very first theater I ever went in as a child. So you can imagine it would be like if Brad Pitt was your prom date. It's all downhill from there, you know? Wow. Really, you're, you're from Akron. That's pretty cool. I am born and bred and raised and left there by the time I was, you know, 17, 18. But I love the Akron City Theater, yeah. Now, did you remember, because obviously I, I was talking to some people, I think it was closed for a while, 
and then um, they remodeled it and everything, and then and reopened it. If, if, uh, if I'm correct, from some of the staff I spoke to that night. Yeah, and what was interesting is during the seedy days, like the early '80s, when all the rubber companies uh, closed up and left, they really let punk rock bands—not really nasty punk rock, more like uh, alternative music or what you would call like alternative music today. They let some bands come and they would play on that grand staircase. That's what they would use as their stage. And then the rest of us would dance down in the lobby. If people remember how big and broad that lobby was, it was lovely. Oh, really? Yeah, so one, one time a friend of mine and I, uh, some friends of ours were playing in a band on the stairs, and she and I climbed up behind them, and we blew dollars behind them. And it was a great place for a rock show. I mean, a small rock show. Obviously, it's a great place for a rock. But even the lobby had such magic. I have great memories there. I have many, many. Some are people, some not. I had a great time there. Oh, that's fantastic. I think we got Doug back on here for a moment. Oh, hey, <laughs> hey, did uh, has Ralph not called in yet? Uh, not yet. He hasn't called in yet. All right. All right. Well, that's it. I call in at uh, 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 at uh, about seven minutes or so ago, but that's okay. I'm sure he's going to give us a call shortly and everything. Um, yeah. I was just checking in. Hey, is uh, who's the caller? Uh, Pippi's on the line here, actually in transit. Pippi. Honey, I really wasn't trying to, to punk the show. I was trying to listen, and, and David made me talk. You know, I don't like to talk. I'm shy, but David made me talk. <laughs> now we got I think you should here talk. From the, from the 530 area code. All right, we'll see you all later. Bye, people. Bye. Bye, everybody. Okay, bye, bye now. Bye. Okay, from the, all right, thanks for calling in. Have a good show, David. Okay, thanks, Pippi. We got someone from the 530 area code calling in. Oh, area code. 530-626. Oh, hi. I was just listening online like this. Hi, this is Marianne. Oh, hi, Marianne. How are you? Hi. Oh, good. Uh, we're going to have Ralph <laughs> Shuck calling in pretty soon. Well, so. that's great. I did yeah. have a question, though, about the chat room. Um, is it open? I'm, I, for some reason, I'm I'm not finding it here. So I, maybe I did something wrong. I don't know. It should be on. Okay. Well, I'll have to refresh and go back in and check. But I was just listening on the phone anyway. But it's nice to talk to you. Fantastic. And where are you calling in from? From uh, Northern California. Oh, really? Uh, north of San Francisco? Uh, near the Sacramento area. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, fantastic. Well, thanks for calling in. And okay. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Bye. 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 Okay. I think we got someone from uh, 978 calling in. Hi. Hello. Hi, this is Mike B. Oh, hey, Mike. How are you? Good. Um, just wanted to know if you're going to be able to activate the chat room tonight for the uh, the show. Yep, I'm going to try right now. Okay, a lot of people are wondering, so I just wanted to call in and ask. Okay. <laughs> trying right now to log in. Okay, should be on. Okay, we'll try reloading. Thanks a lot. Okay.
Well, we got someone calling in from 215. Hello, we have someone from 215. Okay, I think we lost them there. Anyhow, uh, we have the chat room open at this point in time. Anyhow, we're waiting on Ralph Shuckett, who should be calling in pretty soon. Uh, my name is David German. I'm filling in here as the guest host. Uh, uh, Mel and Doug are on one-week hiatus. They uh, called in briefly. They might be calling a little bit later during the show and everything. Um, before Ralph Shuckett, our guest, calls in tonight, I just thought I'd just give you a little background on myself. Um, I've been a fan of Todd for many, many years. Uh, first time I saw him actually was... Believe it or not, on the bicentennial, July 4th, 1976, when uh, at that time the just formed Utopia um, performed at Asbury Park's Convention Hall on the boardwalk. And it was uh, Chasm had just joined the band. They had just gone into a four piece. And uh, um, it was uh, prior to Ra coming out, uh, Faithful had been released that spring. And it was the first time that. Uh, that lineup had toured, and uh, I was certainly familiar with Todd's music, particularly, obviously, the, the more popular stuff, the something, anything material, et cetera, or whatever, but uh, I'd never seen him live, and what really converted me to Todd and become such a big Todd fan was that live performance. I mean, it was just absolutely just blown away by the live performance, and I think, uh, outside of the records, I think a lot of people become Utopia fans because of the live show and uh, how great the live show is and everything. And uh, that's what really converted me. And they were just absolutely amazing that night. Even though Ra wasn't out, they performed a lot of material. Communion with the Sun, um, Hiroshima, Sing Ring, a lot of material that eventually came out the following spring of 77 as part of the Ra album. Um, and uh, they were, from then on, I just became a huge, huge fan uh, of both Todd and Utopia, um, and then eventually went on to, at my college radio station, interview Todd and Roger Powell and did a major three-hour special uh, on Todd and Utopia, um, which um, was broadcast on my campus radio station. So a little background on myself, and uh, we're going to now try and uh, get our guest leaving. Ralph, are you there? Hello? Ralph, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I hear you fine. Terrific. So uh, I was just giving our listeners a little background about my fandom, but uh, let's move right into uh, the uh, meat and potatoes of the evening, the uh, <laughs> part of the evening, and uh, we are just very, very honored to have uh, once again on the show, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll have him even on the show after tonight uh, numerous times or whatever, because... Uh, he's just been a fascinating guest, not only as a member of Utopia, but as an accomplished musician himself. And I'm just so pleased, as my turn here to be guest host, to have uh, Ralph Shuckett here to join us again on Runger Radio. Ralph, thank you so much for taking the time once again. We, we all thoroughly enjoyed you. We've been on the show uh, last time, last few uh, times, and uh, appreciate you being on again tonight. Thank you so that's much. That's my pleasure. A little uh, background about uh, Ralph and myself. Uh, I uh, worked at Columbia Records in the early 90s, um, as did Ralph. Uh, both of us were doing A&R at the time, and we actually met 
um, at that time frame when uh, both of us were farther in our department. At that time, it was headed up by a gentleman named, uh, two gentlemen, uh, a gentleman named uh, Rick Chertoff and uh, Dave Novick, who were heading up the department <clears> at the time. And uh, tonight, um, we're going to divide this into three parts. One, talking about uh, Ralph's experiences with Todd Rummer's Utopia from the beginning. Uh, next, talking about Todd and uh, Ralph's association reunited here for Visitor True Star, but I think it's also important for everyone to also be able to hear about Ralph and the accomplishments that he's had since leaving Utopia, which are just absolutely fantastic, not only from a performance standpoint, but also from an A&R standpoint, from art, which is artist and repertoire. That's the lingua, uh, lingua franca of recording industry people, the people actually sign and uh, record artists and work with them, and Ralph did that with tremendous success, particularly with one artist at Columbia Records, which we'll talk about later. So um, we'll talk more about that in just uh, our days working together at Columbia Records. Mm -hmm. But uh, Ralph, um, if it's agreeable with you, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the time frame going back to A Wizard or True Star and the recording that record, if that's agreeable with you. Oh, sure. Well, let me. I'm an agreeable guy. <laughs> <laughs> let me just start off by um, talking about, uh, and we'll also be taking some calls a little bit uh, later too. So, uh, folks, hang in there who, who do want to uh, make some calls, and we'll definitely put you on. But let's go back in time in 1972, and uh, something anything is released roughly around May 1972, and. Todd, who had had a hit in 1970 with We Gotta Get You a Woman, strikes pay dirt uh, in an even bigger way with I Saw the Light and uh, propels something, anything to uh, some substantial success. And that song's a song that really put him on the map as a recording artist. Uh -huh. That's been producing people, whether it was James Cotton or um, uh, Ian and Sylvia. Um, bad Finger and stuff like that, but was a relative unknown as a recording artist until I saw the light cracks the top 20 and everything. The record then goes on to have good success. Hello, It's Me is not released until almost a year later after something anything had run its course. Uh -huh. um, but he tours in 1972. Uh, as I said, the record has some significant success and then goes back into the studio and... Uh, I believe it is that point in time your association begins with him where he then unveils the beginning of the recording of A Wizard of True Star at the Secret Sound Studios. Right. Yeah, that is what happened. I mean, that's the chronological um, order of things. Yeah. So you're going in the studio with him at this time. He's coming off of these pretty much your know, mainstream top 40 pop hits or whatever, yet the musical direction of this album is 180 degrees different and everything. Uh -huh. did, you, uh, did you sense like, hey, what's up here or whatever? We're not doing I Saw the Light Part 2 or whatever. Um, I'm trying to remember. Um, I think... I think um, well, the whole experience was kind of surprising and unpredictable as it was. I think uh, um, I think Moogie had told me a little bit about him. Um, 
but actually he didn't even know what we were in for. Um, so I guess the whole thing was a surprise, pleasant surprise. Um, you know, we just thought the music was really fresh sounding, and um, we were all sort of concentrating on what we were supposed to do, you know, which is kind of what you do in a recording session. So um, I don't think, at least I didn't kind of, uh, I didn't evaluate it in terms of Todd's career or, or you know, a career move or whether it was a good follow-up to his other records or anything. Um, but it was it was very interesting and um, and fun, you know, and it, and it was uh, some of it was challenging because um, it was you know there was some complicated music there. Um, but we just kind of I always just kind of loved everything that he came up with, um, and I I didn't really question it um, until uh, I guess. Uh, sometime later when we were in the band touring i think um i think when we went on the midnight special i believe it was or some national tv show mm-hmm. um and todd performed hello it's me um and that's when he had the his his kind of uh, bird feather costume on yes and uh <laughs> i remember um his manager was angry at him for that. And I remember um, Moogie saying, oh, my God, this is a career. The guy's doing a career. You know, he's he's ruining his career. It's his first chance, you know, to, to be on national television, and all these millions of people are going to see him, and they're expecting, hello, it's me, like a, you know, a... Um, Yo Sayer or Seals and Sloths or something. Yeah, like they're expe- expecting a middle of the road, easy listening, mellow kind of performer, I guess. And here was this guy who um, looked amazing, but definitely not what people expected. And um, so I remember, you know, Moogie saying that, and he was he was kind of more conscious of he was of all the guys in the band, he was the one who was the most conscious of. Um, you know, career moves and marketing and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. The rest of us just were, we were players, and um, I don't think we gave much thought to any of that other stuff. Um, So, yeah, so, you know, that was kind of the first time um, uh, anyone, it, it had come to my attention, anything having to do with, you know, Todd's career and, long-term career and the marketing of Todd and, and that kind of thing. You know. And frankly, I, did, I sort of didn't care um, at the time one way or the other because, um, um, you know, I, I figured he knew what he was doing, although it was kind of a pain for the guys in the band to have to put on all that those costumes and makeup every night and then, and then wash it off. And, you know, it was kind of we, – we were never – comfortable um you know with all that stuff um it was just kind of an extra an extra hassle and we we thought we were musicians you know um with a capital m and that and that you know the music should speak for itself and <laughs> stuff like that which sure sure obviously I, you know w- with that kind of attitude it's rare that you could be uh, you know a successful 
musician in the in the pop world, um, especially nowadays, without thinking of your image and you know how you're going to mar- market yourself and who your audience is and all that kind of stuff. But at the time, we just you know we 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 were kind of proud of being players, you know, and uh, you know we thought that was just kind of an extra hassle. Now they talk about it in the Billy James uh, book. Uh, Dream goes on forever mm-hmm. about uh, the reticence the band had about the makeup and everything. And yeah. if memory serves me right, uh, the book talks about at one point the band just decided, like, you know what, we're not going to wear all this stuff or whatever. And you just kind of went out there, and, and I guess no, nothing was said about it. And then you just stopped wearing the makeup and everything. Was that the case? You know, I don't really remember. I know that there were a couple of, you know, we were on the road a lot and there were some gigs where um uh let's I you know, were for some reason either because the makeup case was lost or the costumes hadn't been laundered or you know, something like that. There were some gigs where we just kind of went on and you know, pretty much not really street clothes, but you know, much more um, toned down um, outfits and without makeup. I remember there was a few gigs where we did that, and I think when we when it was actually talked about and and the decision was made, I believe it was um, the second tour that we did as Utopia, and I think. Um, you know, I don't remember whose decision it was, to be honest. I don't know if it was the band on strike or I think more likely it was Todd just thinking, well, been there, done that, let's do something else. No, I think for your – I'm sorry. No, and that's when the whole um, – his whole concept of the seven rays um, was kind of the um, defining uh, concept of that particular tour. Um, which was the the let's see, which was the the second Utopia album. Um, another another live. Yeah, and he um, and Todd, um, the Seven Rays was a concept that he had um, that he had uh, learned about from. He was really into theosophy. I don't know if anybody um, in the audience knows what that is, but it's basically it's kind of it was popular around the turn of the century, I think. And it, and I mean, there's still people who do it today, but it's basically kind of a, a westernized version of, I guess, maybe Buddhism or Hinduism or something. I don't know. But they have, and um, it's where they talk about um, different planes and and different planes of reality and vibrations and chakras and um, you know the power of colors, certain colors. For, to achieve certain results and certain um, frequencies to achieve certain results. And um, at the time, he was really into those books. And um, so he, uh, I think he, he, he looked at each person in the band and assigned one of the seven rays to each of us. And then that had to do with the color, a color, I think it might have had, I can't remember if it had to do with the month we were born in or anything like that, but so he'd assign us each kind of a color and a um, sort of like uh, um, what what 
each uh, individual brought to the band or what our our personalities were um, uh, and and it was all and it was all tied in with the concept of the seven rays and then that so that would mean like everything we everything we wore all the costumes we wore had to be the color that we were mm-hmm. and um you know, I, it was probably pretty interesting. I can't remember any of the details of it, unfortunately. But um, well, it was a while ago. But uh, I, I will say this: that Theosophy is really like a Western mysticism uh, rooted in kind of Eastern religion, and, and you saw it certainly on uh, the uh, another live album that you did, and also Initiation uh, has hmm. a lot of Theosophy, particularly side two. Uh, Todd particularly was very interested in Alice Bailey, who was uh, a yeah. who wrote uh, something called A Treatise on Cosmic Fire. Right. And, yeah. And side two of initiation. Yeah. Um, although uh, I, I don't know, I would assume that uh, that book was the influence for Todd to. Yeah, to that was one of them. Side two, Alice Bailey's A Treatise on Cosmic Fire. And I, I will say this. Um, when you were wearing the costumes and, and makeup, uh, for those listeners where this era kind of predates them, that was very standard amongst rock bands at the time. You had Genesis sure. with Peter Gabriel, David Bowie at the time. You know, uh, it was the uh, glitter era, if you will. Yeah. A lot of artists went on stage very costumed and yeah. makeup. So what Utopia was doing was, uh, was very similar to what Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and certainly Genesis with Peter Gabriel were doing in a very theatrical, costumed way and everything. Yeah. But uh, having said that, um, backing all that up was just absolutely superlative music. And getting back to A Wizard of True Star, the lineup on that band, uh, the lineup of that band on that record is just stellar when you look back on it as yourself. There's Moogie, there's John Sigler, there's John Siomos on drums, who then went on to play on a record sold a few copies called Frampton Comes Alive right. a few years later when he joined Peter Frampton or whatever. And then guest musicians, David Sanborn, uh, Rick Derringer, uh-huh. etc. Um, but the core of the band, yourself, Moogie, John, um, and... Uh, um, uh, of course, you know Todd, um, you know really makes that that album go and everything. And from what I've read and and what I've heard, um, it, it, although the record was you know produced written by Todd, um, it seemed like all of you played really an integral element. You were not just people playing the music, but also came with a lot of musical ideas. And Todd kind of welcomed that. Could you talk a little further about that? Um, yeah. Well, he's always been. Um He's not one of these people who tells you what to play, you know. Um, you know, sometimes you'll do a session, and the producer or the artist will say, "Can you play this, this, or, or even there might be a ri- you know written chart or something." And Todd, um, Todd's never been a real micromanager, um, so he would just give us the chord changes and. Um, just tell us to make something up, and then if it was something, if we made something up that he didn't like, he would say do something else. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't say I want you to play, you know, um, 
whole notes in this section and then you know eighth notes in that section and you know he wouldn't he, he never told he never made specific requests for us from for but he but of us i mean but he he would just say do something else you know and then so we would whoever it was that he was talking to would try something else and you know sometimes he'd go nah do something else you know and do something that's not as predictable or do something that's more interesting melodically or um do something with a more of a you know a fatter sound or a thinner sound <laughs> or whatever so yeah we all and that that's that was really full um um it really gives a musician a real kind of it, it, it makes a musician feel good about what he's doing um if somebody if the boss trusts you to kind of come up with whatever you feel is right, you know, and I think that was probably one of the reasons um, he he liked that group of musicians was that he knew we 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 thought of music in terms of the whole. Nobody was trying to. Um, we were all composers, I guess is what it was. Nobody was mm-hmm. trying to say, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this amazing guitar solo here or you know, I'm going to do something that's technically brilliant and everyone's going to hear how good I am or anything. We were we were more of a team. We were team players, and we all um, strived, or is it strove? I don't know. We all, uh, we all wanted to make um, a cohesive sound um, and uh, didn't want to get in each other's way and didn't want to get in the way of... Um, well, actually, I, I was going to say the vocals, except we didn't know what the vocals were, because he did all that afterwards. But um, mm-hmm. we just wanted to make everything kind of all the pieces locked together like a pieces of a puzzle, um, mm-hmm. so nothing nothing got in the way of anything else. Um, now we is, have a caller here. Let me see if I can get him. Well, I think someone wants to ask you a question. If we can go to that caller one second. Sure. Okay. We've got someone from the 816 area code. Do you have a question for Ralph? Uh, actually, I just called in to listen. Uh, I Honestly, I just got uh, on and uh, didn't know who was being interviewed. <laughs> okay. Well, this is uh, uh, David Furman, guest host, and Ralph Shuckett here on the line. Oh, yeah. I've spoken to him uh, before, and he was, uh, he was a great guest. So uh, I'll have to listen and find out if there's anything to ask. <laughs> who Who is this? Uh, Chris Williams, so he spoke uh, last time. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah. Hi, Chris. Uh, how do you? Thank, thanks for remembering. Yeah, we, we talked about uh, keyboards. And, uh-huh. And uh, anyway, so <laughs> just getting caught you, up. Are, you're a keyboard player, right? Uh, no, no, just a sort of person who was <laughs> always fascinated by uh, synthesizers. and Right, uh, right, now I remember that. Yeah, unfortunately, never was a musician. But are you talking about the uh, uh, being on the uh, arena tour, or uh, we're we're um, talking about that? We're right now. We're going to be talking later, uh, but right now we're just talking about going back in the day and just talking about uh, the recording of a Wizard or True Star. Oh, uh, wonderful! We're calling in, and and please continue to listen. And Ralph, I'll I'll continue with our uh, questions and everything. Uh huh. Um. Let me just talk about one song um, that's just uh, just an amazing, you know, classic song to this day, um, and of course the song that Todd pretty much ends most of his concerts, at least the times I've seen him, 
I can't recall him not ending the show with just one victory. Uh-huh. And uh, do you remember playing on that and and uh, hearing that when it was finished and saying to yourself, uh, you know, what what a special song it is? Because uh, I still get goosebumps when I hear it. Today. Yeah, that's that's. Um, you know, to be honest, I I have to listen to it again. I mean, it's just, it must sound funny since I just got off off a tour where I was playing it every night. But um, um, to be honest, I can't remember at the moment. Um, I can't remember exactly, you know, what went on when we recorded that. But I do know that I always thought it was a. I think with that song, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but he might, Todd might have had the entire song written already. That might have been the exception to the rule for for uh, a lot of those songs. But at any rate, when I when I heard when I heard uh, you know all the vocals on it, I you know I just loved it, and it was such a it was such a, a song that's necessary for people's lives. You know, it it it. Um, it really, um, it really speaks to um, to anybody who's trying anything and failing, uh, and it, it you know it's and the music is great and the music is really triumphant sounding and um, and the lyrics are very truthful and and universal and timeless. Um, Without sounding blasphemous, there's a, a religious quality to that song, a spiritual quality to that song. Yeah. Uh, so uplifting and everything. Yeah. I personally think it's one of the greatest songs recorded of all time. It's yeah. It's, it's at that level, and uh, you're so uh, absolutely right on with with the way you're you're talking about it and everything. And I think the way that it still touches people. Here's a song that's now 37 years old that it still uh-huh. touches people, like the song was just recorded yesterday or whatever. I think speaks yeah. volumes of, of of the greatness of that. And what a great way to end such an incredible, incredible album. You know, and it's funny um, because, it, you know, now that I'm a mature, more mature person than I was back then, and I've sort of had a chance to um, think about, you know, Todd's... Uh, um, trajectory in life and and everything and um i don't know if i don't know i, I never he never i've never we've never spoken about that song specifically or whether it was written for because of any particular thing that happened or didn't happen in his life but um you know he's a really courageous guy and um he challenges himself uh with every with every record or with every tour you know he 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 gives himself something that's not easy to do because uh, he wants to grow as a person and a, as an artist and um i don't think any of the guys in the band really understood that when we were playing with him you know we didn't really think of things like that um and uh and and I, it's something that you know, be, having played with him recently, um, I really really respect him for, and I realize how courageous a lot of the things he attempted were, and how how he's it, it, there have been 
really hard times and failures and um, things that didn't go as well as they as he had planned or thought. And he's sort of grown up kind of on stage, you know, in front of all these people. Um, and he's never been afraid to do that. Um, and he's always had faith that he would find the path or find the way um, by attempting something. And it's something that I always try and tell my kids, too, which is, you know, if you, if you don't risk anything, you're not going to grow. And um, you have to do the things that are really scary to you. Um, you have to, but things that you have to do, you really have to embrace, embrace them and face them, or you're you're not going to make any progress in your life. And I think Todd's a perfect example of that because, um, you know, even even you know, every album was a growth thing. But even the fact that he he never started out as a singer, and uh, and even on his first couple of albums, he was not a strong singer. Um, and, but he put it out there, you know, he, he attempted it, he put it out there and, um, he was ready for rejection. You know, he, he, I'm sure he knew that some people wouldn't like it and, you know, and that, that would be painful, but he did it anyway and he's been doing it ever since. And if anyone is, you know, I tell my friends or other people who don't know about Todd, um, that he's just singing better than ever. I mean, he's a real bona fide soul singer now, and uh, um, and he really sings from the heart, and he's got a tremendous amount of power um, in his voice and a, and a large range, and he always uh, um, he improvises on every gig. He never sings anything the same way twice, and um, you know this is all from a guy who was a really introverted. Um, you know, kid um, who who used to write great songs, but had somebody else sing them in his bands, and uh, you know, so it's it's a real good lesson, and it's something that I really respect him for. And he's he's a courageous guy, you know. He's, he's he doesn't he doesn't give a shit if people aren't going to like him for certain things, um, and he knows instinctively, I guess that. He's got to do the things that are scary, or he's not going to get anywhere. You're so right, and, uh, and that was uh, evident in his live performances. But also, if you listen to, for instance, a recent recording of his "Liars," and you listen to a song called "Past," and yeah, of his greatest vocal performances of his career, just absolutely fantastic. Or yeah, he uh, did a duet with Daryl Hall and John Oates a cover of a new Radical song called Someday We'll Know on their album Do It For Love that came out in 2004. This is a Hall & Oates album? It's a Hall & Oates album that features Todd, Daryl, and John all on vocals, trading off lead vocals. And the singing on that recording is so inspired. I highly recommend listeners check out this album, Hall & Oates Do It For Love, um, it was a song called Someday We'll Know. It was actually recorded by a band called The New Radicals. I know The New Radicals. In fact, I, <clears> they had one hit, they had <throat> one album, and that was it. Uh, but uh, um, the guy, Greg Alexander, was a fantastic songwriter. And, um, Hall & Oates covered a song called Someday We'll Know, which also features Todd on vocals. Mm -hmm. And you listen to the singing and the trading off 
of the vocals, uh, particularly with uh, Daryl and Todd, and, uh, and then uh, John is also on it as well, too. Um, it is just absolutely fantastic. So You know, I, it's funny. I, I know Greg Alexander, and in fact, we used to be, I mean, I don't dislike him now, but he, I don't think he, I think he lives in England now, but um, we were friends, and I used to see him quite often, and I met him um, the week that he came to Los Angeles um, at the age of 16. He was a runaway uh, from Detroit, and uh, Detroit, yes. and he had all these incredible uh, songs that he'd done these kind of cheapo, quirky demos of, but he had really brilliant lyrics and great melodies, and and he was <laughs> he was um, what would you say he was a uh, an eccentric guy, mm-hmm. and um, when finally the New Radicals came, well he he had a solo album before that, which had yeah. some amazing songs on it, and and uh, anyway, I, but and then when the New Radicals when their big hit, I forget, oh you get what you give. Yeah, which which you is give, which another is very terrific Todd influence. Yeah, well, he was super into Todd and, and Hall and & Oates. In fact, I mean, he probably knows that they did his song, and it probably made him feel really good because they were some of his early influences. And uh, and uh, and then in the right when You Get What You Give was a hit, all of a sudden he decided to retire, that he didn't want to do it anymore. And he probably could have had four or five hit singles on that album, but he just he was doing a tour, and all of a sudden one day I don't know the details of it, but he just said I don't want to do this anymore, you know, and he just called the whole thing off. And uh, a lot of people were pretty pissed off, I imagine, like oh, I the record imagine. company and stuff. But um, I mean, he continued the gold album. You know? Yeah, and he continued. I think he continued to produce and. Right for other people, I can't remember. He did, he did. yep. Matter of fact, uh, a little interesting factoid about him. There was a uh, show called Archie Bunker's Place. It was this yeah. of uh, of All in the Family, and they adopted a young girl, right. Edith, and that young girl is an actress named Danielle Brisbois. I know Danielle very well, actually. And Danielle actually, you know, she actually... Uh, is uh, featured on the album, on that new Radicals album, and he worked with her, of all yeah. people. But it's funny because... She's a great songwriter, people too. People don't think about her as a recordist and think of her as the young girl on Archie Bunker's place, you know. She but was also in the movie Broadway. Annie, and she was also on Broadway in Annie uh, when she was really, really young. And, oh, she's, um, and she's a great producer and songwriter now. She... Um, she uh, she wrote that song and produced. Um, uh, Unwritten by Natasha Bedingfield. He wrote that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and she produced it too. I mean, she probably co-wrote it with Natasha, but she she produced the record and she produced a lot of songs on that album and I'm sure other albums. And um, um, I've known her. I met her right around the same time I met Greg, because she was his girlfriend, and uh, um, yeah, and she and I and I've written with her before, and she's a really really creative, smart person. I mean, yeah, and a very, very nice very person. Talented. Well, yeah. uh, swinging back to uh, Utopia, uh, 
Wizard of True Star comes out. When was when were the first Utopia shows? I know you did Central Park in eighty four. Uh, no, seventy three. You did Central Park with Sons of nineteen eighty four recorded. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you recall when the first Utopia? There was like a, a an aborted tour, I believe, with the right. Bell's Brothers. Yeah. It went for about a month or so, and then. Um, the band was reconfigured live with yourself and John and Moogie. When, when, when did that start in seven? I guess seventy-three, right? Oh boy, I can't remember. I bet Moogie would know. But um, um, I'm trying to remember our first gig where we, you know, I can't. You played Central Park. You were yeah. That was that was before um, that was before Utopia formed. Right. Um, so you played Central Park, and Sons of 1984 was recorded. Yeah. I believe you were part of the band then, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, and then and then he did. I guess he did the first Utopia tour, and I guess we heard through the grapevine that it was a failure and it was a technical nightmare and stuff like that. And then um, sometime after that, I guess it was when uh, was when he called us to be in the band um mm-hmm. that was and it was actually great. a surprise it was a surprise because you know we played on his records well most of us either together or separately had played on his previous records uh, a couple of people like moogie and john i think played on uh on the um something anything album and um, you know, and I played on the Wizard album, and uh, and we used to think, well, why doesn't he want us to be in the band? You know, how come he's getting those guys? And we just figured it was probably because we weren't very um, photogenic or something, you know, because cause the Sales Brothers looked more like rock stars than we did or something. The spiky uh, colored hair, and Todd had the colored hair and everything. And yeah, I don't know if that was that was. I don't know. I really don't know if that was why. Um, so we were kind of surprised that he wanted us to be in the band, and uh, and um, so Johnny Siomas had just gotten the Frampton gig, so he couldn't do it, um, and we had been playing in different combinations with Kevin, um, Kevin Elman. And I guess Kevin did he play on Sons of 1984? I guess he did. I yeah, I believe it yeah. was it was it was yourself, Kevin, Moogie, Sigler, Todd, and then you had the Horns, uh, Brecker Brothers. I, I, yeah, I guess the Brecker Bros, whatever. So you yeah. you do that, then you go back in the studio. The Todd album comes out in early 1974, which is a double album, uh-huh. which has some material that is. Todd goes back to something anything where he does uh, some of the tracks, plays all the instruments and everything, uh-huh. and then some featured yourself and other musicians and everything. Any recollections of the recording of the the Todd sessions in uh, late yeah February? yeah so I guess those happened after Wizard right yeah yeah yep. it's so all kind of it all runs together in my mind because it was all like late seventy two comes out early seventy three. Yeah. Do the summer tour '73 record Sons of 1984 in L in New York and San Francisco. Go back in the studio '73 to start recording the Todd album. Right. Then comes out as a double album in yeah. early 
before. Uh, still, we've not seen the first Utopia album, but that right. album comes out in 1974. But it's yeah. not done like a Wizard of True Star where you have musicians playing on all the tracks and everything. Some of the songs, Todd does everything. Um, right. Uh, yeah. Other yourself, Moogie, um, and some other people uh, who uh, uh, had not been on a Wizard True Star playing. And I was just curious. Yeah. Well, Kevin, everything. I think Kevin, Kevin. You first see Kevin Elman for the first time on record uh, playing on the Todd album. Yeah. 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 Um, that was really, I guess, the only. That was the only difference um, in personnel, and. You know, the both records were done in the same studio, so I don't have. You know, I sort of they all kind of run together sure. uh, in my memory rather than having any specific memories. But um, again, I just thought the music was so interesting, and um, um, innovative, and and just really cool. You know. I, I do remember, I think, let's see, there's Black Mariah, is that from, that's from that's the Todd from something album. Anything. That, that's from Something Anything. Oh, it is? Yeah, oh, that's okay. from Something Anything, but you had great songs like Don't You Ever Learn. Oh, yeah, that was that was really cool. Yeah, that was a cool brilliant, song. R- brilliant song, and... and uh, what were the? There was a couple of real heavy songs on that record. Heavy metal um, kids. Heavy, heavy metal, metal kids. kids. Yeah, and I remember King Kong Reggae was on there. Right. Uh, uh, and then you had uh, some stuff that almost harkens back to something, anything. Tracks like "Is That Love" and stuff like that, which uh-huh. Todd pretty much plays everything on there. Like, yeah. It was a mixture of of songs that featured yourself and. <clears throat> And band members, and then others where he just did uh, all the songs, uh, you know, by himself and everything. Yeah, I I remember one of my memories is about heavy metal kids, and it was uh, a real learning experience for me. We were the guys in the band were really into funk music and and really into uh, like um, you know the meters and and the um, the whole stacks volt rhythm section sound and uh um you know my people like that i can't remember who else tower of power and average white and band. um and in all those those kind of funk bands um uh usually nobody no two people play the same thing um play the same figure um throughout a whole song but they sort of they, they all everybody plays a little piece and when you put them all together, it makes a really great groove. Um, but separately, the little pieces are just little pieces, you know. And we were really into that kind of music at the time. Still am, I guess. And um, so I remember, in, so that was kind of our orientation uh, when we recorded. And um, I remember with Heavy Metal Kids, um, that was one of the songs where I remember we were we first tried to do something where everyone was playing both key each keyboard was playing something different and the guitar was playing something different and then um and it was really funky and then Todd didn't like it and you know he finally he just said, Look, 
just play the same notes I'm playing, really dumb, you know, just play the exact same part, you know, which is what, like, heavy metal music and heavy rock music does, um, where you have everybody kind of playing the same thing. And so, and we did that, and, and um, it sounded so much better, <laughs> <laughs> or let's say so much more appropriate for that song. And... Um, <clears throat> Um, and then, of course, I guess, well, let's see, I forget what, what kind of heavy rock bands were popular back then, uh, in guitar bands. Or you had bands like uh, uh, Golden yeah. Earring that were popular, songs like Radar Love, yeah. Overdrive were very big at that time frame. As far as straight ahead, you know, rock bands. And I, think, I think Aerosmith was big back Aerosmith then. Aerosmith were just coming onto the scene. Uh, it was a year before Dream One kind of really put them on the map. Uh, and of course, the Who and Led Zeppelin were in uh, their heyday. Were you know riding the charts very Deep Purple, yeah, very, very big. So we we have that record that comes out, and then really in many people's minds was really the beginning of Utopia because you go out in '74. The, sh- the show opens with Todd by himself performing with backing tapes doing the first half of the show. Yeah. And then the second half of the show is the Utopia band. Yeah. And we see coming out late in 74 the debut album of Utopia, Todd Rungren's Utopia featuring Utopia theme, Freedom Fighters, yeah. and side 2 a song that you're one of the co-writers of, The Icon. Right. Yeah. And yeah. When uh, I listened to that record, and when I first heard it, the first thing that kind of struck me was very original, great stuff and everything, fantastic stuff. I mean, Freedom Fighters is great. The Utopia theme is magnificent and everything. Yeah, I love I love both of those. Um, is The thing I think of is Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yeah, they were a big influence at that That's time. That's the question. Who, yeah, who, who were the influences of that? Because, I mean, that was... One, John McLaughlin and Mahavishnu Orchestra, um, you know, kind of uh, had that kind of influence. And, uh, yeah, and probably, um, I mean, at the time, um, if you would have asked Todd who his influences were, he probably wouldn't have told you. Um, we <laughs> never, I, I never even knew that <clears throat> he liked anybody else's music. <laughs> You know, uh, or that he listened to it because he'd just say, "Well, I don't listen to anybody's music." Um, now he would probably say Mahavishnu Orchestra, and, and uh, we listened to that, and and um, and you know, of course, like uh, Chick Corea's record. I, I think Return to Forever was yeah, uh, that band had come out maybe, and yeah. um, um, we were friends with uh, a couple of guys in the band. Um, had played with Jan Hammer and um, were friends with him. And um, who, if people don't know who that is, he was the uh, keyboard player for the Mahavishnu Orchestra and just a he's, monster. He's got the other Powell Probe too. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know whether I was alive. He's got. He's the only other guy with a Powell Probe. Oh, really? Hammer. Yeah. yeah. His looks I, different. Anyway, sorry. I was just researching it yesterday. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> Is that something Roger in, invented or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, Roger invented that for. I'm sorry. Go ahead, there, Colin. No, no. I'm sorry, uh, but yeah, it's uh, 
there's two of you know there's Rogers and which you have the pitch bend right. where the thumb falls on the backside, but Jan's has a sort of a horn and a pair of modulation and pitch bend wheels that look like they were lifted off of a mini moog. Ah, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> boy, he sure that. could play the hell out of that thing too. <laughs> He was he was a god. He could he could now move around when he on the yeah. probe in '77 on the Raw tour. He played almost like he was like a lead guitar player. And it right. Up from not having to stand behind the keyboard and everything. Yeah. Which, which was you know really <clears throat> radical too at, at the time. I mean the only person I ever remember any doing anything like that was Edgar Winter. He used to have this keyboard. He'd have slung around his shoulder or whatever, but it was uh-huh. unwieldy and stuff, and, and Roger really invented something that uh, was very user-friendly uh, for a keyboardist. And yeah, and, and now now um, I guess a lot of people um, use, you know, or since then, I should say, a lot of keyboards, uh, a lot of keyboard players use those. I was never, I don't think I would be comfortable with that, but I'm just no, kind no, of... A, no keytars in your past? I don't, not really. <laughs> But um um yeah I I I don't know I play better when I'm sitting down usually but uh but um I remember uh on one of our tours we we played at Carnegie Hall and um which is a terrible place to play electric loud music 74 uh, you played there in 74 Yeah and um <clears throat> so we invited Jan Hammer to the gig, and I remember, you know, I admired this guy so much, and um, I remember throughout the whole gig, I was thinking of Jan Hammer, who was probably sitting in the, you know, in the orchestra somewhere, and uh, and it's like I played as, I, I tried to play as well as I possibly could, because I knew he was in the audience, and then... Uh, um, after the gig, uh, the next day, you know, uh, I was we he didn't come backstage or anything, and so, um, you know, we all said, well, what, what did did Jan like the show? Like, whatever happened to him? And I don't know what happened to him. And about a week later, somebody talked to him, and they said, so how'd you like our show? And he said, well, I left after the first song. I couldn't get into oh. it. <laughs> oh. Or, or as he said, he used to say, uh, as jazz musicians say. Um, I can't use it. He said, I couldn't use it, you know. Um, <laughs> so it was oh. funny because I was thinking of him for the whole concert, you know, and, and trying to play as, you know, intelligently and funky and clever and, you know, uh, grooving as possible. And uh, and he didn't even hear any of it. Oh. Now, Ralph, talk about the live show from this standpoint. You listen to a song like The Icon, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, crazy rhythms and changes and everything. I mean, yeah. if you do that live, I mean, you've got to be a very good musician, and you guys pulled that off with flying colors. This wasn't just going through a three-minute pop song or whatever. We yeah. Copious that you really, you guys had to really play and get those time signatures, you know, changing time signatures. And yeah, it was really precise music. And you guys pulled it off, and you and the evidence is that album. I mean, it's just brilliant, you know, how Thank you. has pulled it off and everything. Talk about that. Uh, well, the album kind of doesn't do justice to it, because in order to, when we recorded this stuff, and when we played it in concert, a lot of the pieces were longer, um, so they 
they kind of had a chance to unfold in a in a a gradual way, sort of in a more of a natural way. And um, when we recorded them, that's how we we recorded them. And then Todd edited edited everything for the record. Um, he wanted to make sure that every you know everything we every piece or every song we recorded was on the record. So he had to shorten everything considerably, um, which. Uh, um, I mean, when I listen to it, I can appreciate it today, but still some of the songs, you just start to get into the groove and then it changes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we rehearsed for quite a long time for that tour, you know. Um, we, didn't, we, we didn't rehearse for the recording, and, and again, we did the recording in pieces the same way we did um, Wizard. Uh, and he encouraged each guy to come and bring something in so those of us who were writers would bring in different uh uh pieces of music that we'd written and he'd like some of them and some of them he wouldn't like um and then we would record them separately so we would maybe do a couple in one day um and then later on he he would put he put them together and made a whole kind of conceptual trip out of the whole thing and then we uh, rehearsed for we rehearsed a, a very long time. I, I don't remember how long, but we we um, we rented uh, the th- a theater. I believe it was it used to be the Fillmore East on the Lower East Side. Sure, yeah. And um, so we rented that theater for three or four weeks, and we came in and played every day for eight or ten hours, um, and. Uh, you know, we had our sound man there, and um, we had the same um, gear that we would have on the gigs. So everything was um, <clears throat> coordinated really well. And um, so we really knew that music really, like, we knew it really well, um, and we played it many times um, before we, we actually went on tour. And um oh, because uh the playing is just magnificent. And you were saying I'm sorry. Oh no, just that uh, this recent tour that I did with Todd, um, which I, I took over for Roger in the middle, um, but I got one rehearsal with the band before our first gig and um it was pretty uh pretty scary and pretty ragged. You know, the, for me anyway, the first couple of gigs were because uh, Todd doesn't really like to rehearse. Um, so, uh, and that kind of music, you know, I mean, it really, I mean, there was the the concerts came out fine and everything, but but I think everybody in the band would have been a little more comfortable if we could re, if we could have rehearsed for at least a couple of days, you know, before the, before we started. We'll get into that in a moment because um, I definitely want to talk about uh, the shows you've done and everything in the UK and everything. I, I did want to finish a little bit more on, on the Utopia days. Uh, Initiation follows the Todd Rungman's Utopia record, mm-hmm. again recorded late 74 into 75. The record comes out, features Real Man. You play on that record, and that to me was the culmination of the trio of, of Todd's records, starting with The Wizard and culminating with Initiation, that uh, mm-hmm. they fit so seamlessly together, and it's kind of like yeah. 
the ideas with the germs were planted on a wizard or two star and came to complete fruition with initiation as far as the way those three records work seamlessly together. So you had that one side of Todd's career, but then, of course, Utopia launching as a full-fledged entity of itself with the Todd Rungers Utopia records you call, that you just spoke about. And uh-huh. then comes the follow-up, uh, Todd Rungers <clears throat> Utopia, Another Live in 1975, mm-hmm. which starts with a fantastic track starting the album, co-written by yourself called Another Life that started mm. off that album. And can you talk about how that all came about? Another uh, Life. wonderful song that you co-wrote to start off Todd Rungan's Utopia, Another Live, that was released in 1975. Yeah, well, I had that. I actually had that piece of music. Um, I didn't write it specifically for Utopia. I, I'd been working on it, you know, maybe a year or so beforehand. Um, and originally I had envisioned, I guess, um, like a a big band or a, like a jazz group with several horns or or even a, like a 16-piece big band doing this song. And um, I had charts for it and everything. And um, um, and then Todd again, <laughs> he wrote this beautiful song to it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, which just is, has a beautiful melody, and uh, well, actually, I wrote the melody, but I mean, it has great words and um, a great concept, and he's singing it great, and and it just you know blew my mind when I heard it, uh, when I heard the finished thing, because we were never allowed to. I mean, we weren't we weren't forbidden to come to the mixes, but. We weren't really invited. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm getting over a cold. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and so when I heard that, I just, you know, <laughs> I was so blown away, you know, and, and so I felt really so lucky to um, to uh, to have him, you know, transform my song that way. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was really great. It was a fun song to play. And, um, I think when we first started Utopia, Todd had wanted, um, to just say that all the, all the songs were written by all of us. And we, we really didn't like that idea. And, um, because we wanted to, each individual wanted to get some notoriety on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, I think I was elected to talk to Todd about it. Um, and so I went and, you know, and he said, well, you know, the whole concept of Utopia is that everyone's equal and, um, you know, and that it's a real band. And, you know, and I said, well, we're not really comfortable with that because, you know, I said, listen, Todd, you've already made three or four albums under your own name and you've had hits and everybody knows who you are and but the rest of us you know nobody knows about and and we would like to be uh you know recognized as individuals um and these are the only songs you know any that that we've had on record so far 
Um, actually, that's not true because we had other songs covered. But um, mm-hmm. we, you know, we just each guy wanted credit for what he did, you know. And um, so I guess I convinced him, and he said, "He said, okay, well, that's cool." And um, we were happy about that. Now, 1976 comes along, and Todd goes out and tour in 1976, but the fans show up at the show, and all of a sudden they see, you know, a, a, a four-piece band and everything. Yeah. And you're you're no longer there, and, and Moogie's no longer there and everything. What 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 happened in that uh, time period? Was it a decision that you all made to say, you now want to branch out and do your own uh, solo work and stuff? Well, I, I was I was the first person. Well, Kevin actually, Kevin was the first person to leave, and then we got Willie. And but the um, bat left, and Roger came in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and basically, I uh, um, it was just a time in my life I didn't want to travel anymore, and I was starting to get a lot of work in New York. Um, mm-hmm. You know, good paying work and. You know, I thought, well, if I keep going on the road, these people aren't going to call me again, or they're going to call me and I won't be around and they'll get somebody else. So I made the decision um, that I wanted to stay home, um, which uh, at the time seemed like, I I guess in retrospect it was probably the right decision, at least financially for me. Um, Uh and uh, and then once that happened, um, I think shortly after that, Moogie decided the same thing. He wanted to produce, um, and he had his studio, and he wanted to you know make a name for himself as a producer and as an artist. And uh, so he um, you know he he made the same decision. And then I guess I can't remember when John Siegler did. I think he stayed on the latest because he actually played on Faithful. Yeah, yeah. So he so stayed with the band for a while. So I think yeah. he went all the way into early 76. Faithful was basically Todd, uh, Willie, Roger, and John Sigler. Right, yeah. Those, those four on that record or whatever. But uh, come 70, 76 in the summer tour, um, you saw the new Utopia lineup and it's pared down to the four of them and everything. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, um, yeah, I guess John also, John was starting to get busy in town, and um, I think he he might have gotten the offer to play with Hall & Oates by then because he was in Hall & Oates' band for a couple of years. Yeah, uh, actually that was later in the decade. Though. Was it? He, oh, yeah. Hall & Um. 79, they released an album called Ecstatic. And right. It was produced yeah. by David Foster. And yeah, I think I played album. on a little of that, too. Did you? Yeah, great album. Never was not a big album for them. They had a minor hit called Wait For Me, but hmm. uh, great lineup, great band who toured with them. And uh, um, John was, was with Hall & Oates uh, at that time. For they uh, Previously, had Elton John's band. Hall & Oates had Elton John's band with... Uh, Caleb Quay and Roger Pope and people like that. Kenny Passarelli. Passarelli, <laughs> exactly. And then after that, <clears throat> they put together uh, a band that had uh, Jerry Murado on drums, John on bass, um, and an unknown guitar player from Connecticut who came to a capital, capital group called Desmond Child and Rouge, 
with I used to play with that group too. Did you really? And, I was uh, the yeah. I was in the on the first album. I was the original keyboard player. Really? Yeah. I got GE Smith from Desmond Chalarouche. That is a real you know underground classic album. I didn't know you played on that album. Yeah, um, I played. Yeah. Years, so there was a group called Desmond Child and Rouge that came out. Their debut album came out in late 1978, early 79 on Capitol Records and. Uh, Ralph, as you just mentioned, you played on it. Uh, um, John Sigler, uh, I believe, I played on it. I think I played it. on it. Yeah, I'm pretty and, sure. Uh, I played on one of them. It had, they only had two albums out. And Desmond Child, although the, the records didn't become big, Desmond Child went on to become one of the most successful songwriters of the last 25 yeah. years, writing everything from Living La Vida Loca by Ricky Martin to Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi and everything. But it was funny how there's all these connections and everything with yeah, him. he's a, he's an amazing songwriter. Yeah, that's um way into into our next part and we'll I'm going to shift things around a little bit. We definitely want to talk about your Wizard of True Star experiences and we've got another 30 minutes here, but I think it's important for listeners to know Ralph Shuckett and what's happened since then, since you had left Utopia, and it's a great story because I'm going to just read off people that Ralph has worked with. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. Daryl Hall and John Oates, Whitney Houston, George Benson, The Four Tops, Cher, Donna Summer, Richie Havens, Patti Smythe, Phoebe Snow, Joan Osborne. The list goes on and on. And I told people at the beginning of the show about how uh, Ralph and I had worked briefly together at Columbia Records. And uh, what I want to segue into now is... Ralph's co-production of an artist who broke through in a major way in the early 90s, his work with Sophie B. Hawkins, who had a gigantic hit with Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover, and uh, Lay Me Down to Sleep, which was another big, big hit and everything. And uh, um, she has Ralph Shuckett to thank for that success. And Ralph, could you talk <laughs> about uh, Sophie B. Hawkins? Yeah, well, um, it's funny, you know, uh, when I was, I, I, I met Sophie, I guess, uh, a guy who was her manager at the time uh, gave me a demo of hers, a cassette, and um, a really rough dump demo um, that she had made in her apartment. In her, she lived in this uh, really funky tenement on the Lower East Side. Um, and she said she, and she didn't know anything about recording, and she said she just hung a mic from the ceiling like from the lamp fixture, and she just kind of played everything in the room and sang in the room. She didn't even know what kind of mic it was or anything. <laughs> so the sound of this, the demo was very strange and kind of hard to, um, it was hard to hear things, you know, because the, I guess because the mic was up in the, on the ceiling and she was, if she played piano, she would just go over to the piano, which is, uh, you know, on one of the walls, and then when she sang, she'd just sing, I guess, under the mic, and, you know, she, if she played synthesizer or guitar or something, she just played it in the room, and the mic obviously wasn't the best mic to pick up everything in the whole room, but um, <laughs> but I just loved the sound of her voice, and I thought her lyrics were just amazing, I mean, and I still do, I mean, she's, to me, one of the, one of the foremost... Uh, lyricists in pop music um all her songs are very truthful and uh, they just really rang 
uh, resonated with me. Um, yeah, so I started working with her, and I think I worked with her um, probably for about a year um, at the studio at my house in Brooklyn. Um, and then I started uh, looking around for a record deal for her, and I went to pretty much every major label, and several of them wanted her. Um, and the way she got on Columbia was kind of funny. Just coincidentally, Rick Chertoff, um, was, um, who had, was one of the co-heads of A&R at Columbia. He called me, and I was, I was planning on calling him because we were friends and say, listen, I want you to hear this girl, Sophie. She's really great. Maybe you, you want to sign her. And he didn't know anything about Sophie or any of that, but he just called me out of the blue and he said, I'm head of A&R at Columbia. How would you feel about working for me, you know, as an A&R person? And, um, um, so I said, well, yeah, I guess I'll think about it. And and uh, so I brought, uh, I, I guess I sent him some of our demos, and then I brought Sophie in to um, to his office, and he and Dave Novick, um, who was the other head of A&R, um, they both came in the office, and then she just sat there uh, with, I believe, either the at the piano, at the piano, I think Rick had a piano in his office, he did, yeah. Yeah, and she uh, just she sat. They said, "Well, let's you know, we love your stuff. Let's let's. Do you have any more?" And we said, "Well, we well, there's some new ones that we haven't recorded." And uh, they said, "Well, you play piano, right?" And she said, "Well, yeah, a little bit." And they said, "Well, why don't you play some of them for us?" And so uh, she did, and they were just blown away. They just they just really really loved it. And um, and then they offered me that job. And uh, so, kind of, both of them went together. But I didn't. I didn't want to sign her to that label just because I was getting a job there, you know. Mm-hmm. Because I figured, you know, she had to have a relationship with the people at the label and trust them. Um, so we had a big dinner with Rick and Dave and Donnie Einer, the president, and me and Sophie. Um, and she got, you know, she got to know Donnie, and then we had meetings with the other labels that wanted to sign her too. I can't remember which ones they were, to be honest. I think it was Electra, no, it was Warner Brothers, Sire, and maybe Polygram. Um, and uh, uh, so she had people bidding for her, um, and for some reason. She, we had dinner with Donnie, and she's and Donnie, uh, for those who are listening, is a very charismatic, um, persuasive person, um, and he's—I uh, don't know how would you describe him. He's, he's a very hands-on kind of person. He's very yeah. He's like a he's a passionate about music. Uh, some people who are heads of our companies are. Who might have come from maybe a, more of a, a financial or business background. I mean, he's yeah. a music lover first and foremost and everything, and as well as executive and everything, and he's very artist-friendly and everything. And, and he, uh, was, he was very um, – he's, he's, he also, as he, I think he said, he's a street kid from East Harlem, you know, who never went to college and didn't study music or business or anything. Um, and I think he started out in the promotion department. He's 
he's a real handsome, well-built, big guy, and um, he's kind of a, you know, so he's kind of like a Brooklyn, he was like a, a New York character, sort of, and Sophie grew up in, in New York, in Manhattan, and he grew up in Manhattan, and um, they were, I guess, maybe close to the same age, I don't remember. Anyway, um, so after we met with um, with Donnie, she said, I want to go with that guy, because I know you know, Donnie, I, I know he will, Donnie said, I will kill for this record. That's how bad we want you. You know, I will, uh, you know, I will, this record's going to be a hit or I'll, you know, quit or something. I don't know. He was very persuasive. And, of course, Rick is, is a wonderful guy, Rick Chertoff, and a great producer. And he's always been super artist-friendly, and he's, he had produced some hit records at the mm-hmm. time. And she got along really well with him. And so it all kind of worked out <clears throat> for a while. And um, at the time, uh, I don't know, is this still interesting? Yeah. I don't want to ramble. Yeah. Um, at the time, at the time, my wife, who was, who was a songwriter and had a bunch of hits right around the same Ellis time. Ellis Shipley, I might, might tell our listeners. Uh, Ron, yeah. Ellis Shipley was who's yeah. had several records under her own name as a recording artist, but also co-wrote the biggest hit of her career, uh, the co-writer with Rick Knowles, a very well-known songwriter. Uh, Ellen and Rick co-wrote Heaven is a Place on Earth, which is oh. a number one single by Belinda Carlisle, uh, amongst her many successes, and that's yeah. Ralph's wife. Yeah. So, so yeah, so... Um we had Ellen had we had been bi coastal for a couple of years because um Rick lived in LA and so she had to be out here in LA a lot and I, I all my work was in New York so I had to be in New York all the time so we kind of had two homes and um you know we 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 rented a place out here in Hollywood and we had a, our our daughter was three or four years old and so we would just schlep her with us across across country and whenever I got time off from my work then I would bring Casey my daughter with me uh out to LA and Ellen was staying at at the house we were renting in LA which we were sharing with somebody with a friend and um it was a really fun time but it was also a uh kind of a traumatic time um for me, because there were so many things up in the air, and I really didn't want to move to L.A., but Ellen was, Ellen and Rick were really, really hot at the time, and they were everybody wanted to write with them, and and so they had so many uh, great opportunities to write with, you know, write for or with um, a lot of successful people, and um, so she really needed to be there, and. When they offered me the job at Columbia, they wanted me to be in New York. So it was a real kind of a stressful time um, because when I they offered the job to New York, we'd already packed up our house and moved half of the stuff out to L.A. and um, and we had found and Ellen had found a, a house for us to rent in L.A. Um, and you know and here they wanted me to stay in New York and Sophie was in New York and it was just crazy and and I didn't know if I could um you know 
handle the complexity of all that I had because I had a young daughter and sure, was had a lot on your plate. Yeah, and and uh, and she was three or four, and and Ellen was working. She was really hot, so she had all these opportunities, and and I was working around the clock in New York because I was I was writing commercial music for commercials and playing on people's records, and I just I think there was one year I think when I I didn't have one day off until August or something. So anyway, I um so I asked. You know, I told Rick, you know, this is a really big responsibility, and um, you know, you know, I may have to go out to L.A. from time to time, and you know, um, so you know, I, 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 I really need some help doing this record. And he said, "Well, how about if I do it with you?" And I said, "Great." So that's kind of how that came about. And as it turned out, he was, it was, he's just a fantastic producer, and uh, so it turned out to be. Um, you know, fortuitous, as they say. And then we had a big hit with the song, Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover, mm-hmm. which is just a great song. And it's funny because when I was trying to get Sophie a deal, it shows you, will show you how much things change, have changed since then. I guess that was right around 1988, no, 1989. 91. 90, 91 was when the record came out. Uh, um, around 91, yeah. Yeah. So, um about five or six of the labels, the uh, A&R people, high-level A&R people that I took um, took her demos to, told me, well, you know, the only hit song she's got is Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover, and no radio station will ever play a song that has the word damn in it. Um, and we just laughed when we when we would hear that. We would just think like, that's so silly, you know. But if you think back, you know, there were no one, people didn't curse on television, and you know, people, um, Prince hadn't come out yet with all his sexual stuff, and you know, so and uh, um, the the media was a lot more prudish than it is now. So um, a lot of people passed on her for that reason. <coughs> The thing with uh, Tipper Gore with the stickering of the records. And right, right. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and as it turned out, um, I mean, we we knew we had a <coughs> a hit record even before we made. <coughs> excuse me, the record. It was just. <coughs> sorry, I'm choking to death here. <coughs> it was just such a great song. It was so catchy. It had a great beat and. The lyrics were incredible, and um, so that we we knew, you know, we we were really confident that that was going to work out, and the rest which of the it did. And it became a, a big hit. And as I lay me down, to sleep, <coughs> you know, it was a, a big hit as well for her. And uh, it's just a, it's it's a great story and everything. And it goes <coughs> to show, you know, um, you, you just never know and everything. And when you got belief in something. Uh, you know, great things happen, and that's that's certainly a, a great example of that, and a, and a great story. I did also want to ask you about Lou Reed, because around the time you first hooked up with Todd, you were also working with, with Lou Reed in, <coughs> in, a, in a live capacity. <coughs> uh, around that time, you released uh, Transformer, the David Bowie produced album, with yeah. the Wild Side and everything, and then followed up with a 
another album, a uh, great album called Berlin. And I was right. curious what your connection was with Lou Reed at that time. Well, I owe that all to Moogie, as I do the my Todd connection. Um, uh, you know, we were really good friends, and, and I was in Moogie's band, um, and we had this two-keyboard thing going. We really had a nice... Um, just to, we played together really naturally, um, and um, so um, Lou Reed, Transformer had just been released, and he had a hit song "Walk on the Wild Side," and um, um, he had he had a band called the Tots, which were these teenage kids from Westchester um, who were really raw and could barely play their instruments but he liked Lou Reed liked that um you know he liked he, he liked the sort of am, amateurish aspect of rock and roll which I like that too <clears throat> um but um I guess he got too many comments that the band was unprofessional when he started his tour so um his lawyer was really, or manager, I think, was they were just desperate to find some musicians, and they knew Moogie, and they called Moogie and asked if he could get a band together, and he hired me, um, and uh, that's kind of how that worked out, except um, uh, Lou Reed really didn't like the sound of the two keyboards, and for some reason I, uh, he didn't like me either. I'm not sure why. How could you not like me? I mean, give me yeah. a break. Um, <clears throat> so the great he artist, but he's also an eccentric character as well, to say the least. So um, he was going to send me home, and then Moogie kind of saved me because he he just said, "Well, you know, Ralph's a great rhythm guitar player," and I played a little guitar. You know, I mean, I knew a few chords and. I could play in rhythm, but I wasn't like, you know, Keith Richards or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so Lou said, oh, yeah, well, let's let's hear you play. And so we played a couple of the songs, and they were all really simple songs, you know, that only had two or three chords. Sure. Um, and since I couldn't really play that well, he loved that. <laughs> so so <laughs> I, ended up, I ended up playing guitar. Uh, Guitar on on probably seventy percent of the show, uh, uh, yeah, uh, on the tour, and it was just it was a it was just wild. I mean, it was in the height of the glitter rock, sex and drugs uh, era, and the audiences were just wild. Just like people would come all dressed up in wild costumes and. You know, people. I mean, people would be would be shooting up in the front row to get Lou Reed's, you know, attention. You know, they thought that he would, you know, he would like that. You know, and oh, it was just crazy. Long heroin that he had. Yeah, and um, so, and uh, the band, the guys in the band were. It was a real group of partiers. Um, so it, it was it was pretty a pretty wild time. And I remember the first night um, we played, and, and um, we went back to the hotel, and, and I remember Moogie saying to me, man, we didn't get any chicks, you know? Like, like how come we didn't, you know, we were kind of, in, you know, we just, we, we did a couple rehearsals with him, and we flew out there, and we played the gig, and, 
right. you know, we were kind of, our heads were spinning, and, and you know, he said, all these girls, you know, we, I mean, look at all those groupies around there. And um, so the next night, everybody said, well, we're going to talk to the girls tonight. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> so, you know, we, I don't know, talked. I, I, I wasn't really into that kind of stuff at the time because I was married. But, um, you know, some of the guys, you know, talked to girls and said they'd come back to the hotel. And when we got back to the hotel, there was just hundreds of glitter people, like, all over, you know, in, in, on every floor and in the lobby and just all these, you know, wild-looking, stoned-out people <laughs> waiting for us because whoever, whatever girl somebody, you know, picked up uh, – probably told 10 of her friends and then they would tell their friends and so i mean it was just like a madhouse and then after that every every uh town we played in that's what happened um until eventually uh you know the, the i guess the hotels some of the hotels wouldn't allow it and they just like called the police and kicked everybody out but um and, it, it was oh, pretty wild wild stuff, wild stuff. And then uh, Lou then had a band with Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner and, and uh, recorded uh, two live albums, Rock and Roll Animal and Lou Reed Live, that came out. Yeah, and that was uh, those were great bands. Which, which, which were fantastic bands. And, yeah, and it's funny because the, one of the reasons our band was so into partying was that whenever we played really tightly, um, Lou hated it, you know, and he'd come back and backstage and say, "You guys suck. You're a bunch of old farts." You know, I want rock and roll out there, you know. And and, and but then whenever I remember one one night, a couple of the guys in the band took acid and before the show, and and other people were drinking and stoned and whatever, and so the the set was just really chaotic, and people <laughs> forgot what to do, and you know it was just really a mess, and that's and then Lou Luke came backstage and said, "Man, this is a fucking rock and roll band," you know, he really liked the chaos, so all these guys who were were trying to be professionals they they all just kind of say well fuck it if that's what he wants you know we'll have a good time <laughs> so from a man who who uh, recorded a record called metal machine music yeah basically was a whole album of, of feedback yeah i know whatever you know so it doesn't it doesn't surprise me hearing that story uh for for time's sake because we only have 15 minutes left here ralph and there's just uh, some great stuff to talk about here is is the tour with a Wizard or True Star, and uh, talk if you can about to what happened over in the UK and everything. Um, I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to address that and everything. And how did those shows go? Ah, uh, they went really well. I think they were both the Amsterdam and London were sold out. I'm pretty sure, and um, just you know, everyone there was a Todd fan, um, so the audiences were just. So warm and friendly, and um, the crew, the crew, the English guys we had working for us were fabulous. They just were so um, knowledgeable and experienced, and 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 good-hearted and supportive. And so it was really great. And and um, again, you know, I would have liked it. we could have used a, at least one rehearsal because we we were off for about a, a month before we. 
before we went there, but um, but it went it went really well. And and Todd, of course, you know, it, <clears throat> um, I don't know if you've seen any of the Wizard shows, but he, you know, he does a lot of costume changes and. And he just—he's just such a, a consummate uh, entertainer now, as well as being a musician and a, you know a performer. Um, and he just was so entertaining and spontaneous. And <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he really cares about his fans, and he—and he, and he uh, you know, and they love him. And it's just so—it's—it's—it's it's, it's always a—it's—it's uh, it's a real comfortable. Uh, good vibes, fun, fun show. What was and, the first half of the show? In first uh, in Akron, and everything it was uh, uh, Utopia. Uh, it was uh, uh, Roger, Todd, uh, Prairie, and Chasm coming out doing uh, stuff from Oops, Wrong Planet, Adventures, etc., and everything. What, what was the first? Half of the, UK? the the opening of the show was Todd. Uh, did or is in the middle of finishing an album of Robert Johnson songs. Mm-hmm. And um, so the um, opening of the show was him and uh, Jesse Gress, the guitar player, and Prairie and Kaz doing um, these new Toddish arrangements of uh, Robert Johnson songs. And Crossroads being one of them? Sorry? I think Crossroads is one of them. Yeah, uh-huh. And um, uh, and Todd's a great, you know, fantastic blues player and singer. I mean, he really, I think one of his first bands, Woody's Truck Stop, was a blues band. And, it was, uh, in 66, yeah. We had a <clears throat> and he has real respect for that kind of rhythm and blues, you know, American rock and roll rhythm and blues tradition. Uh and uh, you know he's been through a lot in his life, so when he sings a blues song, you know it's it's real. And uh, so that's what the shows that's what the opening of the show was. And and it's funny because I have my sister is a is a uh, black music fanatic. Ever since I was a little kid, she was turning me on to blues, and she's quite a bit older than me. And she, she, when I played with Todd, you know, 20 years ago, she came to all the gigs and she said, I don't know, I don't, this guy just doesn't do it for me, you know. And um, but when she saw this Robert Johnson thing, she just, she said, this guy is a heavy dude, you know. She totally <laughs> loved him, <clears throat> and she said he he really connected with with the songs and the audience, you know. Except he didn't let me me play on the first play on any of that stuff which is a drag because i'm a i'm mr blues but um he wanted to to have a different instrumentation so (laughs) now how about the california shows how did those go you played up and down yeah they all went really well um the first one that i did was san francisco and frankly it was i mean i i i was so nervous that i pro i probably i almost i don't know (laughs) <laughs> we went up we went up and had the rehearsal and it turned out that we had like maybe a 2 hour rehearsal and where we just covered maybe I don't know three or four songs and I was just a nervous wreck because um you know there's a lot of stuff to memorize and 
and to play correctly on that record. So the first couple of couple of gigs, I was just so terrified. I I can't even remember what happened. But <clears throat> but when we got to L.A. and um, Ventura, you know, then I started to relax and and they were great. And of course, those guys in the band are great players and they were so supportive and helpful and fun to hang out with and um you know so they they really uh made it easy for me um, well, playing it wasn't really just like playing the record because the the performance is so theatrical it was yeah. a matter of also timing too you know because when do you start when Todd comes out with the costume change and all that kind of stuff makes it even yeah. more intricate and everything and the fact that uh the band pulls it off with fine colors and everything is a testament to how great uh, everyone in that band is. Yeah, because all the songs, there's only one break um, between songs, and it happens, I guess, after the first four or five songs. And um, so they all come really fast, one right after another, seamlessly. And so there's no place to, you know, take a drink of water or wipe yourself off or, you know... Um, I don't know. Look at the charts or whatever. So it all it all goes by really fast, and it's all you know. There's no breaks. So it's it's kind of a. It was pretty uh, pretty hairy for me at the beginning, and also, I'd say eighty percent of the songs start with me. Start with piano, you know, solo piano, <laughs> which was my job. So you know, it was pretty. Uh, you know. It was pretty um, scary for me, but um, you know, it seemed to. Then I saw I saw some bits of it on it, you know people had taped on cell phones or you know um, video cameras and stuff, and it sounded great. I you know it sounded fine. Um, I just looked really serious <laughs> in the pictures because I was I was thinking, oh my god, you know I can't remember what to do here. And also, the show is done slightly differently than the album sequencing because Sunset Boulevard into uh, Utopia actually ends the show, while on the actual record, it's uh-huh. on side one. So things were changed up a little bit in the actual live performance of it. Yeah, to make it more, and, to make uh, the end more. That, that, you know, if CDs were in that day, probably that's how the record would have been recorded, you know. Yeah probably would have ended, instead of with just one victory, it would have ended, you know, with uh, the Utopia reprise uh-huh. of the Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Well, that's, um, yeah. yeah he, he switched a couple of things around just to make the end of the show more exciting, I guess. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite an experience for me because... Um, before that, I, I really hadn't played in public in about 25 years. So, really, so because um, I've been composing for TV in my little studio, usually just by myself, or like writing charts for a, a really great piano player to play my stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and so, and now I just want to—I want to play. You know, I'm—I really want to do it all the time. <clears throat> well, I know you certainly made a lot of people very, very happy. I mean, this tour and these shows have just been real special uh, 
landmarks for a lot of people who were fans of uh, Todd Runger and Utopia, and I don't think anyone ever thought that uh, they ever see this, uh, you know, come to, to come to fruition. The great record finally being yeah. performed live and everything, and, and thanks to Doug and Mel and Runger Radio, um, you know that that happened and everything, and. Uh, uh, certainly, people expect it to be great, but I don't think people expect it to be as incredible as it was on just every level. From mm, these, yeah. you know, Todd with the costume changes and just the whole performance aspect, the band, uh, just everything about it, uh, lighting. It's yeah, first class all the way. I mean, it's just really, yeah. really special. And I know a lot of artists. That's been the trend recently from Springsteen, you know, uh, on down have been doing albums, you know, in their entirety as part of their shows. Uh I challenge anyone to match what this show's all about and everything and the way that it works and everything. It's really, truly special. And uh, Thank you so much. I'm very happy. I feel like I have a whole family of, an extended family of people on Facebook now, of Todd's fans. Um, And it's funny, most of Todd's fans are, are very smart people and really interesting people and um you know they they, they uh i'd say his audiences tend to be um well educated and culturally yeah. really hip and uh and open minded looking too yeah huh <laughs> devastatingly good looking too oh yeah yeah we've got to say that too <laughs> I'm a married man. I say so. that, Ralph, because, uh, you know, after the show in uh, Akron, there was an after party, and I had a chance to meet people, and I was first, you know, stunned by, you know, just the variety of places that people came from, which was amazing. But then, obviously, one of the questions is, what do you do? What's your occupation? I mean, there were people yeah. who were doctors and, and things like that, you know. Yeah. And, you know, go back to, you know, the original days of Todd Runger's Utopia and everything, and how they've, you know, moved on, you know, in their lives and everything, um, many of his fans are people very accomplished in their own lives and everything. Yeah. And that the music still has an impact on them all these many years later and everything. And I think that's... Yeah. I wish, I, I wish there were more young people, um, you know, who, who for the most part don't know who he is or what he did or anything. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> on a large scale, because... But that is happening in the U.K., because, you know, one thing yeah. that inspired this whole thing to happen was there's a whole <clears throat> new generation of electronica, they call it a whole genre, it's a lot of yeah. club-oriented music, but for, for a bigger term, it's called electronica. Yeah. And uh, there's a whole series of artists uh, who have discovered Todd's music, and I'm specifically talking A Wizard or True Star, Initiation, that yeah. year on a music or whatever, and have made it their own. There's a group called Simeon Mobile Disco. Huge Simeon Mobile Disco. Should I check them out? Great band. Big in the U.K. electronica scene, you know, for the young kids or whatever. And on their latest album is a song called Synthesize, which samples uh, Born to Synthesize. From no kidding. And perhaps the biggest group of, of its kind of that genre is a band called Daft Punk. And Daft Punk oh, yeah, I, I have a lot of their records. Their their movie, they did a movie called Electroma that came out in 2006, and uh, you can get it through Netflix. It opens up with international feel. Really? The whole sequence of the movie, you can see it on YouTube, opens up with uh, the guys driving 
through a desert out in California to uh, international field. So it's great to see that these young musicians are discovering Todd many years later um, yeah. and incorporating their music. But I agree with you. It would be nice to see even more of those younger people at the shows and everything. Cause well, they're, they're you know, I just I know they would love it. You know, that's the thing is is um, I mean, there it's such a you know the music is so satisfying and he's a great entertainer and it's uh the music is very um you know it's it's unpredictable and it's um um it's pretty fresh you know uh, compared to a lot of stuff that's out there and i do know guys in bands like young guys in bands who who love todd um and a couple of my friends came to the la show um but i i just it, it it's kind of sad to me that um, that the audience that that he can't fill a larger you know like a stadium or something because I think there's there's something in his music that everyone so many people would connect with of all ages you know uh, my kids I brought my kids and they're set uh, 24 and 17 and you know they love it my son loved it um, and he's really into um, you know like kill Swiss Kill Switch Engage and My Bloody Valentine and All That Remains and all those mm -hmm. kind of new, I guess, metal, really aggressive bands. Right. Um, he, and he loved Todd. He, he loved the show. Ralph, so, thank you so much. I, we've uh, run out of time here. Um, thank you, David. You know, it's, hours. I, I like to talk. You know, I love to talk. I hope no one fell asleep. Um, not at all, not at all. Um, this was absolutely terrific. Uh, really, really appreciate it. And uh, thank you again. We appreciate it. And uh, it's been an honor having you on the show and everything. And, Likewise. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to have you on again if, if uh, you're sure. on board and everything. And, uh, Always. Thank you again. Thank Get you, well. man. And if you come out to L.A., um, you know, look me up. We'll, we'll hang out. We'll do something. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, and thank, thanks to all the people listening, too. Thank you, everyone. Okay. Bye. Good night. Bye now. Bye. Bye-bye.